In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. If you live in a municipality that's any bigger than a tiny village in this country, you have people experiencing homelessness on your streets. If you live in a big city, you probably encounter these folks every single day. Some of the people you meet might be newly without a home. Others might have lived without one for years. Homelessness can seem like an endemic problem, like a permanent fixture. But it's not. Even though it's a problem that can be tackled and beaten, a lot of people seem to think the solutions to homelessness are visions of some left-wing utopia that we can't afford. You can't just give everyone housing. They say you can't let people who are battling addiction live rent-free in apartments. You have to make sure there are benchmarks. Make sure that these folks are ready, whatever that means, to get off the street. These are the sort of arguments that you'll often hear about why ending homelessness is a liberal fantasy. But it isn't. Today, we're going to take a trip to Medicine Hat, Alberta. And if you think that is a left-wing utopia, then I can't help you. But Medicine Hat has achieved a national benchmark known as functional zero homelessness. And they didn't do it by spending themselves into the ground. They didn't do it by making everyone pass a drug test. They just did it. So let's find out how a chronic problem can have a happy ending. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jamie Rogers is the manager of Homeless and Housing Development at the Medicine Hat Community Housing Society. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Jordan. Maybe you could help me uh, by starting with a definition. You know, when we see a headline that says Medicine Hat has officially ended homelessness, what does that mean? Um, So what that means is that Medicine Hat has reached functional zero chronic homelessness. And that is a national definition that has been implemented And what's really important with that definition is, A, it doesn't mean that we don't have people that are experiencing homelessness. It means that for those individuals that are experiencing chronic homelessness, that we've met that national threshold. And in Medicine Hat, that means three individuals or fewer are in a state of homelessness for three consecutive months or less. It sounds like there's a ton of detail that goes into tracking that and measuring it. There is. And this is, um, for Medicine Hat, this is 12, 13 years in the making. This is not something that just occurred last year or the last couple of months. It's been a long time planning, systems planning work, integration, community collaboration, learning and growing, and also making a lot of mistakes along the way. I want to talk about the entire process uh, because I think it's fascinating and I'd like you to kind of walk us through it. But Maybe for context, um, rewind those 12 or 13 years and 
you know, a lot of our listeners are in uh, Toronto or other big cities. Maybe give us a sense of of how bad the chronic homelessness problem was in Medicine Hat before the work began. Yeah, so I would say that before the work began, we didn't know how how um, people were experiencing homelessness in our community because we didn't have data and we didn't have any um, facts or data tracking or systems of care that would even measure those things. So a little bit about the history here in Medicine Hat and a little bit of Alberta actually is, um, so homeless initiatives really got started in 2001 under the federal government um, in the creation of what's called community entities. So, so people will be familiar with that. They're across Canada. They've just recently expanded. Alberta really took off um, in 2006, 2007, when we had an affordable housing crisis. The affordable housing crisis actually initiated um, local plans to end homelessness. So back in 2007, 2009, if we go back that far, um, at the time I was not in Medicine Hat, but worked with my counterparts in Medicine Hat. I was up in Grand Prairie, Alberta at the time. Um, and that was called our Outreach Initiative Pilot Project Days, where the provincial government invested $16 million into seven cities on housing and homelessness, which makes up the seven larger centres in Alberta. And we got to explore, um, for a very grassroots um standpoint, what we could do to actually end homelessness and what that would look like. It was at that time that I actually, and we all did across Alberta, stumbled across Housing First. Um, and we uh, packed up and went to Toronto, actually, and learned from some of the best. So Ian DeYoung with Orcode Consulting, who used to be with, with in Toronto, uh, we learned from him. And even at that time, I was a skeptic um, that I didn't think Housing First would actually work because it was very simplistic in design. Um, and I thought that it really just couldn't be that easy. Um, so fast forward, we, we implemented these uh, housing first in our respective communities. We came up with an evaluation at the end of 2009, and it really landed on the brilliance of housing first and looking at housing as a fundamental human right and really meeting where people, where they were at when they were experiencing homelessness to effectively support community members that do not have housing. It's we should probably house them first and then look at the other elements that maybe got them into a state of homelessness or that they need help to maintain that housing for themselves. 2009 is when Alberta actually really started to drive forward with change and look at local plans to end homelessness, as was that time where the provincial government released uh, a plan for Alberta and it was the addressing and ending homelessness in Alberta. So it was a, it was a perfect time. Um, it was a time where there was a commitment to change and a commitment to really looking at ending homelessness versus managing it. So prior to that, we used to invest a lot of money, including ourselves, into keeping people in a state of homelessness. Um, and there, there comes a time where we have to stop doing certain things so that we can progress other things. And 2009 was a critical time in Alberta. You just said something that I found really interesting, which is that you'd invested a lot of time and money into keeping people homeless. What does that look like? So that so keeping people homeless means that we invested our funds and services into providing blankets and food and boots and tents even. Um, we did this as well. Um, so it's part of that learning and evolution as we go that if we actually want to shift and really make ch sustaining change that we actually need to really stop doing some things. So it's not just the continuation of let's keep adding services. We need to have a hard look at what is perpetuating the cycle and how do we reinvest those funds into initiatives that actually work. You know, to end homelessness, you got to house people. It, there's simplicity in it. It's If you want to house people, you, you have to actually provide homes. Is that what Housing First means? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but 
you know, maybe take me inside that. Is it just a simple matter of like, okay, houses before everything else, and we proceed from that philosophy? So when we look at a housing first philosophy, it means that people have a right to housing. Um, it means that when we house individuals, that it's after that time that they are housed that we can actually start to look at the issues um, or some of the challenges or barriers that they are facing to help get them into housing and maintain that housing. It is harm reduction based, uh, meaning that we don't require people to stop using or doing things um, in order to be to receive housing and supports. Um, so it's not a reward system in its simplest form. Um, it is around meeting the individual where they are at, not where we are at. Um, it is about ensuring that we have affordable housing and many different housing options available to people. What I might find conducive to my housing might not be for the next person. And whether that's size or location or form or neighbors even, um, so that choice, choice is always key within a housing first philosophy. And it's around um, the elements of coordination and ensuring really that the system is coordinating in a way that effectively addresses those underlying root causes of homelessness as well. So implementing philosophies in the absence of not advocating for policy change is a program. Makes sense. Um, I can understand that. So let's start with how it happened then. So it's 2009. You've got the philosophy. You've got the housing first approach. Uh, and to your point earlier, you mentioned until you start doing this, you won't be quite sure of how many people there are out there who need it um, and, and what the actual process looks like. So tell me, I guess, is what's the first step on the ground to actually making this happen? Um, so in our respective communities, the first step on the ground was getting to know people, um, getting to know people and their names and really personalizing and really humanizing um, those that are experiencing homelessness in our community. Um, so it was really focused around data and collecting that data in a way that was coordinated across the entire system of care. So, and it was about community development and the understanding of this, you know, housing first works. Um, here's the data to back it up from other jurisdictions, and let's actually implement this as a community. So it was a lot of community development work in the beginning. It was a lot of advocacy with landlords and property management companies. Um, we use what's called the scattered site model here in Medicine Hat, where almost all of our individuals that we house are in scattered sites, so they are our neighbors. We want them integrated into community. We don't want to create um, that that disparity between you know, this is a homeless serving building and this is not. So we, we have that community inclusion and integration built into everything. Um, some of the things that were really integral to, to our success was that obviously systems planning, people hear me talk about that a lot, um, local decision making. I cannot rave enough about local decision making. So the ability for um, federal and provincial investments to come to a coordinating body and community and that coordinating body's responsibility was to ensure that the needs of community were met. Um, that looks very different in every community um, and it's around the flexibility and nimbleness of that body to actually move and fluctuate with the changing needs of community. The big story will be back in just a minute. So I obviously don't have, you know, a, a heck of a lot of expertise uh, on the municipal politics of Medicine Hat, um, but I have been uh, a municipal reporter in Toronto, and a lot of the words you just used, flexibility, nimbleness, uh, direct outreach, getting to know people by name, 
they seem very antithetical to the way a municipal government traditionally operates on this stuff. How did you convince the government to to change so much and just how much had to change um, from the way Medicine Hat, the city of Medicine Hat would normally do business? Um, I would say that it wasn't actually a matter of convincing. We just did it. Um, so we were not seeking permission huh. um, to address a fundamental human right. We, we did not seek permission to change uh, pro- programs and policy. We just seriously, as a community, we implemented. Our responsibility along the way was to inform municipal government and all levels of government that this is what we were doing and to also relay that this was the a cost savings you know, when we, we frame we frame our efforts around homelessness, it was we, we knew going into it, it had to be either a moral issue or a financial issue. And the beautiful thing is that it is both. So when we look at cost savings to systems, our mayor says it the best, it's it, there's one taxpayer. And whether you're whether that, that taxpayer dollar is going to keep people homeless or to actually provide housing and resources to keep them housed and stable, it's still a taxpayer dollar. Um and the moral issue of that is, of course, you know, it's the, it's the housing is a fundamental human right and community should be taking care of its own um, with support, of course, in that financial investment from across across all three levels of government. So I would say there was not as much convincing as there was. We just did it. That's amazing. Um, I don't know if I don't know. And I want to say that it could. But could that translate to a gigantic city like Toronto or Vancouver, you know, when when you speak of getting to know uh, unhoused folks by name, it seems it seems like an almost insurmountable problem here. I'm kind of begging you to tell me that it's not, but do you know what I mean? I really grapple with how you would scale something so uh, personal. Well, I learned how to do this from Toronto, actually. Hmm. Um, so, uh, as I as I mentioned, when I first learned about housing, first it was me traveling to, to Toronto and learning about housing first. And I remember at the time when I was in Toronto and hearing Ian speak um, was that, yeah, but Medicine Hat does, our Grand Prairie at the time didn't have the, the resources that Toronto has. So I was always under the, the misguided perception that it was around how much financial investment there was. And while that is important, and it is very important, um, we actually had the reverse said to us when we when we had kind of when the world knew about our, our state of homelessness in 2015, where people responded back going, yes, but you're small um, in a smaller community. So our counter to that was, but we have a tenth of the, the financial resources you have, So which really goes to it, it is scalable. We scaled it down. We scaled it down from Toronto and other jurisdictions as well. And it's around really good systems planning and investment. Um, We tend to say we take the politics out of it, um, which is very difficult to do. Um, But we take the politics out. We focus on policy and the people that we are there to serve. And that is our mandate and and that is our goal that we strive to. So I would say to, I just uh, heard that the city of Toronto just passed a motion to end chronic homelessness. That's leadership. That commitment from, from, from council um, to actually look at ending homelessness and making that bold statement, that will take Toronto far. That's great to hear. I want to also ask you about, you know, to your point, you either sell it as a moral issue or as a as a financial one. How has it been as a financial issue? I know that's probably a question a lot of city taxpayers in, in any municipality thinking of uh, adopting this strategy will ask. 
from a from a financial standpoint, we can look at the cost of uh, managing people in their state of homelessness, which you know the the Pomeroy Group and other other people that do research on this, it's around sixty six to one hundred twenty thousand dollars annually to keep people homeless. When we look at the ability to house and support individuals, that's between twelve and thirty four thousand, and that varies across. And we have to you know obviously account for inflation. So that's one of the costing factors. The other one that we, we you know that we should have focus on is also the decrease in inappropriate use of systems. Um, when we look at even just within Medicine Hat, for those that utilize public systems, um, so when we look at our core group of our adults that we've housed throughout the years, and that number is 995, we actually have a 32% reduction for the number of days in hospital and a 67% reduction for the numbers of days in jail. When we start doing the math on that, those cost savings can pay for programs. And it's not that we actually have a transfer of funds. We don't. Um, that would be nice. But that is not how that works. But even just the inappropriate utilization needs to be factored in and that cost avoidance to those systems. One of the things that we do see an increase in, which is really interesting, is actually a, a significant increase in court appearances. Um, and we, in Medicine Hat, seen a 35%. When you look across Alberta, those numbers are relatively the same. So when we have 20,000 people, uh, that we've housed across Alberta to date, um, those cost savings and cost avoidances are quite significant. Can you give me a sense of what that experience for an unhoused person is actually like and how it would differ from someone experiencing homelessness uh, in a municipality that doesn't do it this way? So, you know, I am I'm unhoused. Um, let's say that I do uh, have a substance issue and I am on the street and an outreach worker walks up to me and what happens that wouldn't typically happen in another municipality? Um, if you're in Medicine Hat, what would happen is they would greet you by your name unless you were brand new to community. Um, that way they would have a conversation with you. You would come to our housing link service, which is our co- which is our coordinated access service. And they would do a brief interview with you, um, ask you if you're just passing through community, if you have somewhere to stay tonight, um, if you're connected to other resources. Um, and then they will do a, a, use a tool and to assess your level of need to match you to the right program or service if you need a program or service. The thing that we don't want to do is overserve people if they are just passing through or if they just need a little bit of assistance. We don't want to intervene and create an enabling environment. If that individual um, does not need case management of any sort, they can go into a rapid resolution program, which is very brief solution-focused intervention to get people housed or to help them maintain their housing. Um, if they need more intensive services, they can go into our One Housing First program. Um, that's 12 to 18 months of case management. And in that program, as with all of our programs, that individual will be provided three options for housing. The caseworker will help them get housed and support them and work on individualized service plans and case goals with them. Um, and one of them has to be housing stability, obviously, and the rest, you know, it varies from person to person. Um, if for those individuals that are needing more intensive services, where they actually need some 24-7 um, supports, we do have permit supportive housing in our community, um, and that is caseworkers on site, obviously, 24-7, and then connected to more intensive resources beyond that. So it's not just the Housing First programs or permit supportive housing or rapid resolution programs that are doing the work. There's the one case manager that does the work, and they will assist with the housing as well. But it's really around those wraparound supports being provided from lots of other different systems. So whether that's health or sometimes justice or the education system even. 
um, individuals are encouraged from day one that they interface with our system, that we want them to graduate out or exit out of our program successfully. If larger Canadian cities were to make this commitment and start now, how long would it take until, I don't want to say until they can reach uh, homelessness zero, um, but until they start seeing tangible, tangible results? Uh, because I, I imagine that once those results start rolling in, the process will snowball and there will be more support for programs like this. So I think that in, in most large centres and in, in most uh, urban centres across Canada, I think a lot of this work is happening already. And I think the traction is there. I think there's great foundations laid. I think it's around coordinating systems a little bit differently and really driving for that change. I think one of the challenges that are faced in other communities that Medicine Hat is just now experiences, experiencing is a, a, the supply of housing. The demand for housing is exceptionally high. I can't imagine in cities in Toronto, in Vancouver, Edmonton even, that that demand for housing is so high that without housing, you can't, it's very difficult to implement to the degree of success that we've seen here in Medicine Hat. One of our saving graces is that we have historically had housing supply that met the need. We are just now entering into a phase where we need to start getting housing stock on the ground, or we too are going to be in that 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 precarious position where we're not going to be able to maintain and execute on our plant and homelessness because of a shortage of supply. I mean, that is a huge issue. Uh, I know in Toronto and Vancouver, at least. And, you know, one of the other issues, and maybe this is the last thing that that I want to ask you about, um, is that there's actually a desire to get some of that housing built, uh, but it's been almost impossible to find a neighborhood that is willing to accept it. There's a ton of nimbyism and, you know, people trying to find any bylaw they can to stop uh, an accessible housing site from going up anywhere near them, even if it's on a parking lot, et cetera. And, you know, how do you counter that perception? Um, that is something that is very near um, and recent here in Medicine Hat as well. And it happened to be around our COVID emergency response, unfortunately. And when we really sat back and, and went through that and looked at that, the underlying issue was around stigma. Um, it was around the perception of people and the right to access services. And it was around the differing opinions of community members about how people looked, how people walked, where they frequented. And that was really the underlying issue. So I think there's a lot of work ahead for all municipalities and all jurisdictions to look at, you know, zoning and land use bylaws and to be really cognizant that those rules and regulations are about zoning for land use and not zoning for people. And I think that's a conversation that we need to start having at a higher level um, because when we, you know, when we really deduce what's happening, it's, it's discriminatory. It's a discriminatory practice where, we are, where you know, those that are making decisions perhaps are looking at the utilization and who is accessing those services versus the need for housing. Do you think that's something that we're ready to grapple with now? Um, you just mentioned you guys are having the same problem. You know, we, we, we shared something with our community and it was, a, we actually shared an open letter with our community in that the one thing we really wanted to stress was that someone's housing status is not their defining attribute. I think when we, we've arrived at a time and a crossroads where whether we're ready to have those conversations or not, we need to have those conversations. We need to ensure that housing remains a fundamental human right, period. <laughs> 
Jamie, thank you so much for this and congrats on, on the work you've done. And that last part could be an entirely new episode of this podcast. So much appreciated. Thank you, Jordan. Jamie Rogers of the Medicine Hat Community Housing Society. That was the big story, a happy big story on a Friday, thank goodness. For more of those stories, some of them happy, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can talk to us anytime via email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, we're in your favorite podcast players, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, you know the drill. Claire Broussard is the showrunner at Frequency Podcast Network. She looks after the Big Story team, which includes lead producer Stephanie Phillips and associate producers Ryan Clark and Joseph Fish. And I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. Have a safe and happy weekend, and we will talk on Monday.